0: CHAPTER TWO, PART TWO OF THE PLANET STRAPPERS This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. THE PLANET STRAPPERS by Raymond C. Gallum CHAPTER TWO, PART TWO Just after New Year's, they had eight bubs completed, tested, folded carefully according to government manuals, and stowed in an attic they had rented over Otto's place. They had seven ionics finished and stored, More parts and materials were arriving. The air restorers were going to be the toughest and most expensive to make. They were the really vital things to a spaceman. Every detail had to be carefully fitted and assembled. The chlorophane contained costly catalytic agents. A winter of hard work was ahead, but they figured on a stretch of clear sailing now. They didn't expect anyone to shake their morale least of all a nice, soft-spoken guy in USSF grays. Harve Diamond was the one man from Jarviston who had gotten into the Space Force. He used to hang around Hendricks. He dropped in on a Sunday evening, when the whole bunch was in the shop. They were around him at once, like around a hero, shouting and questioning. They were mottled patches on his hands, and he wore dark glasses, but he seemed at ease and happy. "'There have been some changes in the old joint, huh, Paul?' he said. "'So you guys are one of the outfits building its own gear. "'Looks pretty good. "'Of course, you can get some bulky supplies cheaper on the moon, "'because everything from Earth has to be boosted into space "'against a gravity six times as great as the lunar, "'which raises the price like hell. "'Water and oxygen, for instance, "'peculiar on that dry, almost airless moon.' "'But roasting water out of lunar gypsum rock is an easy trick, "'and oxygen can be derived from water by simple electrolysis.' "'Hell, we know all that, Harve,' Ramos laughed. "'So Harve Diamond gave them the lowdown on the shortage of girls, "'yet, in serentitus base, on the moon. "'Just the same, it was growing like corn in July, "'and was already a pretty good leave spot, if you liked to look around.' big vegetable gardens under sealed, stelline domes, metal refineries, solar-powered plants, plastic factories, and so forth, already in operation. But there was nothing like Palestine, on Little Palace, out in the asteroid belt. Mars? That was the heebie-jeebie planet. Gimp asked Harve how much leave he had on Earth. "'Not long, I guess,' Harve laughed. "'I've got a check back at the Force Hospital in Minneapolis tomorrow.' but right away it was evident that his thoughts had been put on the wrong track. His easy smile faded. He gasped and looked kind of surprised. He hung on to Paul's old swivel chair in which he was sitting, as if he was suddenly terribly afraid of falling. His eyes closed tight, and there was a funny gurgle in his throat. The bunch surrounded him, wanting to help, but he half recovered. "'Even a good Space Force bub, manufactured under rigid government specifications, can tear,' he said in a thick tone. "'If some jerk horsing around with another craft, bumps you even lightly. Compartmentation helps, but you can still be unlucky. I was fortunate, almost buttoned into my Archer-6 already. But did you ever see a person slowly swell up and turn purple, with frothy bubbles forming under the skin? while his blood boils in the big vacuum. That was my buddy, Ed Kraft. Lieutenant Harvey Diamond gasped. Huge, strangling hiccups came out of his throat. His eyes went wild. The kuzaks had to hold him, while Mitch Story ran to phone Doc Miller. A shot quieted Diamond somewhat, and an ambulance took him away. The incident shook up the bunch a little. A worse one came on a Tuesday evening, when not everybody was at the shop. The TV was on, showing the interior of the far side, one of those big, comparatively luxurious tour bubs that take rubberneckers that can afford it on a swing around the moon. The far side was just coming into orbit, where tending skip gliders would take off passengers for grounding at the New Mexico spaceport. Aboard the big bub, you could see people moving about or sitting with drinks on curved benches. A girl was playing soft music on a tiny, lightweight piano. There wasn't any sign of trouble, except that the TV channel went dead for a second, until a standby commercial with singing cartoon figures cut in. But Frank Nelson, somehow, put his hands to his head, as if to protect it. Mitch Storey, with a big piece of stellene in his brown mitts, stood up very straight. Gimp, at a bench, handed a tiny capacitor to Eileen, And started counting, slow and even. One, two, three, four, five. What's with you slobs? Jig Hollins wanted to know. Dunno. We're nuts, maybe, Gimp answered. Ten, eleven, twelve. Charlie Reynolds and Paul Hendricks were alert, too. Then a big white light trembled on the thin snow beyond the windows turning the whole night landscape into weird day. The tearing, crackling roar was delayed. By the time the sound arrived, all of the stellene in the far side must have been consumed. It had no resistance to atmospheric friction at five miles per second or faster. There were just the heavier, metallic details left to fall and burn. Far off, there was a thumping crash that seemed to make the ground sag and recover. ''Here we go,'' Charlie Reynolds yelled. In his and Hollins's car, they got to the scene of the Fragments Fall, two miles out of town, by following a faint, fading glow. They were almost the first to reach the spot. Tiflin and Ramos, who had been working on their jobs, came with their boss, along with a trailing horde of cars from town. Flashlights probed into the hot impact pit in the open field, where the frozen soil had seemed to splash like liquid. Crumpled in the hole was a lump of half-fused sheet steel, wadded up like paper. It was probably part of the far side's central hub. Magnesium and aluminum, of which the major portions had certainly been made, were gone. They could never have endured the rush through the atmosphere. Ramos got down into the pit. After a minute, he gave a queer cry and climbed out again. His mitten smoked, as he opened it, to show something. "'It must have been behind a heavy object,' he said very seriously, "'not like his usual self at all. "'That broke the molecular impact with the air, "'like a ceramic nose-cone, "'kept it from burning up completely. "'The thing was a lady's silver compact, "'from which a large piece had been fused away. "'A bobby-pin had gotten welded to it. "'Old Paul Hendricks cursed, poor two-and-two, "'moved off sickly with a palm clamped over his mouth.' Eileen Sands gasped, and seemed about to yell, but she got back most of her poise. Women have nursed the messily ill and dying, and have tended ghastly wounds during ages of time, so they know the messier side of biology as well as men. Ramos gave the pathetic relic to a cop, who was trying to take charge. Somebody must have goofed bad on the far side for it to miss orbit like that, Ramos grated. Or was something wrong beforehand? Their TV transmitter went out. We were watching, too, at the garage. You can see the aurora, the northern lights. Those damn solar storms might have loused up instruments. But who'll ever know now? The Cusacks, who had been to an athletic association meeting at Tech, had grabbed a ride out with the stream of cars from town. Both looked grim. No use hanging around here, Charlie, Art urged. Let's get back to the shop. Before he drove off, Jig Hollins tried to chuckle mockingly at everybody, especially Charlie Reynolds. Time to think about keeping a nice, safe job in the Jarviston powerhouse, huh, Reynolds? And stand near Grandad. We're supposed not to be children, Hollins, Charlie shot back at him from his car window. We're supposed to have known long ago that these things happen, and to have adjusted ourselves to our chances. Ninnies that get scared first thing when the facts begin to show, Tiflin snarled. Cripes, let's don't be like soft bugs under boards." You're right, Tiff, Frank Nelson agreed, feeling that for once the 'er ne'er-do-well, the nuisance, might be doing them all some good. Frank could feel how Tiflin shamed some of the quiver out of his own insides and helped bring back pride and strength. The Far Side disaster had been pretty disturbing, however, And next day, Thursday, the blue envelopes came to the members of the bunch. A printed card with a typed-in date was inside each. Report for Space Fitness Tests at Space Medicine Center, February 15th. Just a couple of weeks. Two and two was moaning that night. How will I get through with my courses only half finished? You've got to help me some more, people, with that stinking math. So equipment building was almost suspended while the bunch crammed and sweated and griped and cursed. But maybe now, some of them wouldn't care so very much if they flunked. Two loaded automobiles took off for Minneapolis on the night before the ordeal. The bunch put up at motels to be fresh the next morning. Maybe some of them even slept. At the center, there were more forms to fill out. Then, complete physicals started the process. Next came the written part. Right off, Frank Nelson knew that this was going a familiar way, which had happened quite often at Tech. Struggle through a tough course, hear dire promises of head-cracking questions and math problems in the final quiz. Then the switch, the easy letdown. The remainder of the tests proceeded like assembly line operations, each person taking each alone, in the order of his casual position in the waiting line. First, there was the dizzying, mind-blackening centrifuge test, to see if you could take enough G's of acceleration and still be alert enough to fit a simple block puzzle together. Then came the freefall test. From the top of a thousand-foot tower, a parachute arrangement broke your speed at the bottom of the track. As in the centrifuge, instruments incorporated into the fabric of a coverall suit with a hood, were recording your emotional and bodily reactions. The medics wanted to be sure that your panic level was high and cool. Nelson didn't find free-fall very hard to take, either. Right after that came the scramble to see how fast you could get into an archer, unfold and inflate a bub and rig its gear. "'That's all, mister,' the observer with the camera told Nelson in a bored tone." "'Results will be mailed to your home within twelve hours, Mr. Nelson,' "'a girl informed him as she read his name from a printed card.' So the bunch returned tensely to Jarviston, with more time to sweat out. Everybody looked at Gimp Hines and then looked away. Even Jig Hollins didn't make any comments. Gimp himself seemed pretty subdued. The small green space fitness cards were arriving at Jarviston addresses in the morning.' Near the end of the noon hour, two and two Baines was waving his around the Tech campus, having gone home to look, as of course everybody else who could had also done. Cripes, hidey-ho! Here it is, he was yelling at the frosty sky, when Frank came with his own ticket. The Cusacks had theirs and were calm about it. Eileen Sands' card was tucked neatly into her sweater pocket as she joined those who were waiting for the others on the front steps of Tech's Carver Hall. Ramos had to make a noise. See what Santa brought the lady? But he didn't forget your Uncle Miguel either. See? We're in, kid. Be happy. Yippee! He tried to whirl her in some crazy dance, but Gimp was swinging along the slushy walk on his crutches. His grin was a mile wide. Mitch Story was with him, looking almost as pleased. Guess legs don't count out there, Gimp was saying. Or patched tickers either as long as they work good. I kind of figured on it. Hey, I don't want to ride anybody's shoulders. Ramos cut it out. We won't know about Charlie and Jig till tonight, when they come to Paul's from their jobs. But I don't think that there's any sweat for them, either. Only, where's Tiff? He should be back by now from where he lives with his father. Tiflin didn't show up at Hendrick's all that evening, or at his garage job, either. Ramos phoned from the garage to confirm that. "'And he's not at home,' Ramos added. "'The boss sent me to check. His old man says he doesn't know where Tiff is and cares less.' "'Just leave Tiff be,' Mitch Storey said softly. "'Maybe that's the best at that,' old Paul growled. "'Only I hope that darned idiot doesn't cook himself up another jam.' They all knew then, for sure, what had happened. Right now, Glenn Tiflin was wandering alone somewhere, cursing and suffering. As likely as not, he'd start hitchhiking across the country to try to get away from himself. Somewhere, the test instruments, which had seemed so lenient, had tripped him up, spotting the weakness that he had tried to fight. Temper, nerves, emotional instability. So there was no green card for Tiff, to whom space was a kind of nirvana. The bunch worked on with their preparations. Things got done all right, but the fine edge of enthusiasm had dulled. Jig Hollins flung his usual remarks with their derisive undertone, around for a couple weeks. Then he came into the shop with a girl who had a pretty, rather blank face and a mouth that could twist with stubborn anger. Meet Minnie, Jig said loudly. She is one reason why I have decided that I have had enough of this kid stuff. I gave it a whirl for kicks, but who, with any sense, wants to go batting off to Mars or the asteroids? That's for the birds, the crackpots. Wife, house, kids, right in your own hometown. That's the only sense there is. Minnie showed me that, and we're going to get married. The bunch looked at Jig Hollins. He was swaggering. He was making sour fun of them, but in his eyes there were other signs, too. A pleading. Agree with me. Back me up. "'Quit. Don't see through me. "'It's not so, anyhow. "'Don't say I'm hiding behind a skirt. "'Above all, don't call me yellow. "'I'm not yellow, I tell you. "'I'm tough, Jig Hollins. "'You're the dopes.' Frank Nelson spoke for the others. "'We understand, Jig. "'We'll be getting you a little wedding present. "'Later on, maybe we'll be able to send you something really good. "'Best of luck.' They let Jig Hollins and his Minnie go. They felt their contempt and pity, and their lifting wild pride. Maybe Jig Holland's wise guy and big mouth boosted their own selves quite a bit, by contrast. Poor sap, Joe Cusack breathed. Who's he kidding, us or himself, or neither? Soon Eileen began to show symptoms. Sighs, a restlessness, sudden angry pounce that would change as quickly to the secret smile of reverie, while she hummed a soft tune to herself, rose on her toes, dancing a few steps. Speculative looks at Nelson, or the other guys around her. Maybe she envied men. Her eyes would narrow thoughtfully for a second. Then she might look scared and very young, as if her thoughts frightened her. But the expression of determined planning would return. After about ten days of this, Gimp asked, ''What's with you, Eileen? You don't usually say much. But now there must be something else. She tossed down a fistful of waste with which she had been wiping her hands. She had been cementing segments of the last of the ten bubs they would make. More than they needed now, but spares might be useful. Okay, all, she said briskly. You should hear this without any further delay. I'm clearing out, too. Reason? Well, at least Tiff flunked his emotional. I've been getting the idea that possibly I've been playing on a third-rate team. No offense, please. I don't really believe it's so. And, if it isn't, so you're tough enough not to be hurt. Far worse, I'm a girl. So why am I trying to do things in a man's way when there are means that are made for me? I'm all of 22. I've got nobody except an aunt in Illinois. Meanwhile, out in New Mexico, there's a big spaceport and a lot of the right people who can help me. I'll bet I can get where you want to go before you do. Tell Mr. J. John Reynolds that he can have my equipment, most of which he paid for, but perhaps I'll still be able to give him his ten percent." "'Eileen, cripes, what are you talking about?' This was Ramos, yelping as if the clown could be hurt after all. "'I don't mean anything so bad, fun boy,' she said more gently. "'Lots of men are remarkably chivalrous, but no arguments. "'Now that I have declared my intentions, "'I'll pick up and pull out of here this minute, "'taking some pleasant memories with me, "'as well as a space fitness card. "'You're all good plotting Joes, honest, "'but there'll be a plane west from Minneapolis tomorrow.' She was getting into her blazer. Even Ramos saw that argument would be futile. Frank Nelson's throat ached suddenly, as if at sins of omission. But that was wrong. Eileen Sands was too old for him, anyhow. So long, you character, she said. Good luck. Don't follow me outside. Maybe I'll see you someplace. Right, Eileen. We'll miss you, Story said. And we'd better, sure enough, see you that someplace. There were ragged shouts. Good luck, kids. So long, Eileen. She was gone. A small, scared, determined figure, dressed like a boy, On her wrist was a watch that might get pawned for a plane ticket. Ramos was unbelievably glum for days, but he worked harder building air restorers than most of the bunch had ever worked before. We're hardcore now. We'll last, he would growl. Final long lap. March, April, May, with no more interruptions. In June, when our courses at Tech are finished, we'll be ready to roll. That was about how it turned out. Near the end of May, the bunch lined up in the shop the ten blast-off drums they had made, including two spares. The drums were just large tubes of sheet magnesium, in which about everything that each man would need was compactly stowed. Archer 5, Bub, sun-powered ionic drive motor, air restorer, moisture reclaimer, flasks of oxygen and water, instruments, dehydrated food, medicines, a rifle, instruction manuals, a few clothes, and various small, useful items. Everything was cut to minimum to keep the weight down. The lined-up drums made a utilitarian display that looked rather grim. The gear was set out like this for the safety inspectors to look at during the next few days and provide their stamp of approval. The blast-off tickets had also been purchased for June 10th. Well, how do you think the bunch should travel to New Mexico, Paul? Frank Nelson joshed. Like other bunches, I guess, Paul Hendricks laughed. A couple of moving vans should do the trick. End of chapter two. Part two.